Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. great day to be here to worship the Lord with you. Take your Bible and turn with me to the book of 2 Peter. Book of 2 Peter, we're going to look at the last three verses of the first chapter of the epistle of Peter, the second epistle of Peter. I'm going to read from the New American Standard Bible and then you follow in whichever version of the Bible you have with you today. Verse 19 of chapter 1 of 2 Peter. And so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy has ever made, been made rather by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Last month, Jerry Seinfeld was interviewed by a man named Tim Ferriss, and they were talking about his long career. You remember Seinfeld, most of you do, some of you still see it. I checked yesterday to see if any edition was it was on yesterday, and four times it was shown on PBS. No, excuse me, wrong station. <laughs> that would be a big error, wouldn't it? TBS. But nevertheless, in 2012, it was designated as the most successful of all sitcoms in the history of television. And in the course of the conversation... Seinfeld revealed the secret of his success. He said, I could solve just about anybody's life with weight training and transcendental meditation. Now, he wasn't saying that for a laugh. He meant it because he does those things himself. He trains with weights three times a week, an hour each time, and he practices transcendental meditation every day, two times a day for 20 minutes, where he silently says to himself in his mind a mantra which he has chosen, two or three words, and it just gives him great clarity, and he finds success in that. He said that the greatest tool made for mankind is transcendental Meditation. He says, if you have that tool in your hip pocket, you are Columbus without a compass. I had to think about that one a moment, but I think I understand what he was saying. Well, I don't care whether I'm offensive in this statement. If he were here, I'd say, Mr. Seinfeld, you are an incredible comedian and probably an even more outstanding writer, but you just don't understand I'm not sure you're really being honest with yourself. Or if you are, you're being duped by the God of this age who blinds the minds of unbelievers. This passage of Scripture 
basically tells us that we as human beings can neither give the Scriptures, it's not given by man, nor can we interpret the Scriptures. Both of those are the work of the Holy Spirit of God. So let's begin by looking at the origin of the Scripture given in this passage of Scripture. If you'll look at verses 20 and 21, they say, but know this first of all. This is the most important thing that Peter wants his readers to get. If, he don't, don't, if they don't get this, the other things will not matter. This is greatly important to him under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Now let me pause here just a moment. The word interpretation comes from a word which means to unravel or undo or discover. It was used, for instance, in the book of Mark by the writer of Mark to describe how Jesus unraveled the mystery of the parables as he taught the apostles how they could understand parables and what the purpose of parables actually was. In addition to this, this word translated interpretation is used in the book of Acts on two different occasions to describe the solving of a problem. So the interpretation of the Word of God, explaining the Word of God, I'm standing here today with the assignment to seek to interpret the Word of God. I would be a fool and my attempt would be altogether futile were it not for the fact that the Holy Spirit lives in me. And I'm not unique in that. Everyone who knows Jesus Christ has as his or her body the privilege of housing, actually templing the Holy Spirit of God who is in us and we are not our own. It so happens that I have been given this assignment and I understand firsthand the imperative nature of depending on the Holy Spirit. And that's not to say that I always explain things correctly. I get out from underneath the umbrella of the Holy Spirit, I'm sure, many times. When I prepare to preach or teach, this is always part of my prayer. Oh Lord, please help me not to say something in interpreting the Bible that is not in keeping with your message. And then, Lord, if I should do that, unintentionally do that, would you please erase it from the minds of those who hear what I say? It is serious business to interpret the Scripture. But we do have one who is the perfect interpreter, the Holy Spirit of God. This is why when you open your Bible, if you know Jesus Christ, you come before the Lord, you pray a prayer like the psalmist prays in Psalm 119, 18, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. Or you could pray for yourself and others whom you cherish in the body of Christ that the eyes of your heart and your friend's hearts would be enlightened by God so that you and they could understand the Word of God. This is also a prayer that I often pray when it comes to the moment of teaching the Word of God, that people's eyes would be open. The Puritans had a saying that 
when we come to know Jesus Christ, we get a new set of eyes. And that would be the eyes of God, the Spirit of God, who knows the Scripture. He knows the mind and heart of God backwards and forwards. And it's His responsibility to teach us. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 26 to the apostles, He said, you will be given what you need by the comforter or the helper. He's going to teach you and you in turn will teach others. The Holy Spirit is the one who interprets the Scripture. He unravels the mystery that is sometimes in our own minds associated with the Word of God. It's not mystery in the sense that it's something that's unachievable for us but it is in the sense that we have to rely on Him to be our teacher. Let's look a little further in verse 21 regarding the origin. For no prophecy was ever made or came by an act of human will. Peter is careful under inspiration of the Holy Spirit to make this point. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. It does not say God spoke through them, although there is a sense in which that is true. But God spoke from them. This is very important. And this measures quite well when you put it alongside what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.16 when he says, All Scripture is God-breathed, the NIV says. And that is a better interpretation of the word, which is oftentimes even by the New American Standard translated inspired because it speaks of God giving it, coming from God to those writers of Scripture to give us what we call the inspiration of the Scripture. And then the Holy Spirit illuminates the Scripture so that we can understand the Word of God. They, these te teachers or prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit as they spoke from God. The word moved is used in Acts chapter 25 twice, excuse me, Acts 27 twice, verses 15 and 17. And in that passage of Scripture, the Bible talks about the ship upon which the Apostle Paul traveled. He was a prisoner of Rome. He was en route to Rome, and there he was going to stand before the Emperor Nero to defend himself. And really ultimately to preach the gospel to him. And then there was this great storm which lasted for days. It was not one that was for a few hours and over. I mean, day after day after day. And finally there was shipwreck. But in the interval between the beginning of the storm and the time of the ship being wrecked, what happened was that the winds came, according to Luke's description of it, using this very word, and caught the sails of that ship and the boat itself, once the sails were taken down and all the tackling of the ship was thrown overboard, everything was in an effort to save the ship, but the ship kept, be, kept on being driven along in the Mediterranean Sea. Well, this is the picture. The Holy Spirit came and moved, drove, if you will, the writers of the Old Testament. And if that's true, the Old Testament's also true of the New Testament. We see that. And these men, and in some cases women, were used by God to give us what we know is the Word of God. The origin of Scripture, not in man's mind at all. 
This book is unique above all books. If we only had one book, this would be the book that we would want. For it is the book which reveals the person of Jesus Christ. That is incredibly important because there's no other name under heaven whereby a person can be saved from his or her sin. It's only the Jesus who can do that. And Jesus is displayed in both Old Testament and New Testament. Now remember, there was no New Testament at this time. Many of the books were already written. They were in circulation independently, sometimes together, like Paul's writings would be put together, and the writings would be shared by cities where there were churches that were close in proximity. But nevertheless, there was no what is called a canon of Scripture like we have, where we have the Scriptures in the way in which they are provided for us today. But what we do know is these prophets, these prophets preached and taught about the Messiah. In fact, there was some research done on this, and I don't know exactly how long ago it was. I found it in my research. There are 351 fulfilled prophecies in the life of Jesus which were predicted regarding the Messiah, the deliverer of Israel, and the one who would bring the kingdom of God on earth as it was in heaven. 351. 101 of them are found in the Psalms themselves. I was surprised at that many. I thought there'd be a lot in Isaiah, and I was right. Several in Jeremiah. I was right. I knew about Micah and other parts of the Bible. But really, it kind of surprised me. One of the reasons I asked for the reading of Psalm 22 will become more apparent as we move our way through this consideration of this passage of Scripture. So, before we go further, please understand that the Bible was given by God, from God, by the Holy Spirit, and the Bible is explained to us and applied to our lives by that same Holy Spirit. So it's not up to us to understand it and figure it out. We have to put ourselves in a position to hear from God by opening the Bible. This is why annually, like now, we encourage you to, if you're not currently traveling through the Scriptures, to do so not for fun. There is some great joy which comes through that process, but because you want to know Christ more. You want to grow in the Lord. The purpose of this Bible that we hold in our hands and read is for giving light to us. Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. The implication is clear. There is no insight that has any eternal value and quite frankly, very little temporal value apart from reading your word, reading the Bible. That's not to say that we can't learn from other books that are not necessarily talking about the Bible or talking about Christ. There is truth about things, but not the kind of truth that we need, not the kind of truth that's simply academic in nature, but that truth which is relational in nature. We've studied this so far in the book of 2 Peter chapter 1. 
And the way it's interpreted in the New American Standard Bible, the word which is translated full knowledge is knowledge, that kind of relational knowledge is the words, are the words rather, full knowledge. So the purpose is really to give us salvation. Come to know Christ. Why do we need salvation? Well, the Bible is really a book, I would say, not only about Christ, for sure about Jesus, but it is, and it would follow, that it's also a book about salvation. It's salvation history. The Bible is historically accurate. It is the history of God's working in the redemption of mankind. When you study the Old Testament carefully, and you study the New Testament, then you go forward and you look at the intervening two millennia from the time that Christ came and was crucified, buried, raised from the dead. It's amazing how predictable people are. It does not matter where you and I intersect anybody in history. We all act the same way because we're sinners. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And there is a remedy that we need, and people are looking for it in so many ways, like Seinfeld looking for it in TM, and other people looking for all kinds of solutions to that which ails them without knowing what it really is. The problem is that each of us was created for a relationship to God, but our sin separates us from God. And all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, the Bible says. And the wages of sin is death. So we already have a sense of that before we come to Christ because of the emptiness we feel in our lives. As we read from 1 Peter chapter 2, that beautiful statement early in the chapter which says, we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have hope. And the only way anyone can have any real and lasting hope is to know God through Jesus Christ. And when Jesus restores us to the Father, then we are fixed up, as it were, to be men and women who enjoy all the benefits of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible is not too kind in its depiction of us. The Bible is real, though, in the sense that it's transparent. One of the things that makes the Bible believable to me, and I think it would to any thinking person, is the way that it paints its heroes, especially tr treats its heroes not with kid gloves, but treats them as they really were. The father of the nation of Israel, Abraham. What a man. At the age of 75, he senses the leadership of God. He takes his wife. She was 65. He was 75. And his nephew. And they just take off to... They don't even know where they're going. God says, just go, and I will lead you. We think people who do that sort of thing today are crazy. But the reality is God led that man and he showed a lot of faith, didn't he? He's the only person in the Bible who by name, don't mishear what I'm saying. I know Jesus says no longer do I call you slaves, 
for I've called you friend. He's the only person in the Bible who is actually described as the friend of God. It was because he did not live in dependence upon himself most of the time. But we know there were times, right? After he began this journey of 25 years before God fulfilled his promise to him. And the first thing I think of is when he and his wife Sarah were in the vicinity of Egypt and they came into the kingdom of Pharaoh and he said to his wife, look, sis, she was his sister, by the way, half-sister. He said, don't tell him that we're married because you're so beautiful that if he finds out, he'll kill me. He was a coward, right? I mean, I wasn't in his shoes. I probably would have done worse, but nevertheless, he was, he was a coward. And not only that, he was a liar. And he brought his wife. He made her collude with him in this ruse and God protected her. It happened a second time too when they were in the land of Philistia. And Abimelech, Pharaoh was a title for the monarch of Egypt. We know that. They all had other names. That was just the title like president is for the chief and staff of staff in America. But in the Philistine nation, Abimelech was also a similar name that many people held. It was a title. We don't know the name of that particular Abimelech, but what we do know is same thing happened, and he passed his wife off again a second time. He was a coward, and he was a liar, but God used him, didn't he? But the Bible doesn't hide that from us. The Bible looks at a Moses, and Moses is a man who murdered a man. Well, he was trying to help a guy. It could be said it was in defense of an innocent person, and that would be true. Let's just give him a, a pass on that. But there were other times when his behavior was anything that was godlike. But God used him in a mighty way. I think next to Jesus, he's the greatest man who ever lived. That's just my opinion. The Bible doesn't say that. But he was a great man given this ominous responsibility to lead probably two to two and a half million people for 40 years in the wilderness and to put up with all their griping and carrying on. And he was 80 years old when that trek began. Can you believe it? God seems to pick old people in Scripture to accomplish great things because they know they can't depend on themselves. They are reaching a point of some deterioration. I thought about when Moses wrote one of the Psalms that he's given credit for in the Psalms. He says, God gives you 70 years, and if by strength, 80. So he was a man who was already 80 when he began his serving the Lord, and he did it in a beautiful way. He was a man, but he was a flawed man. There's one figure in Scripture, Melchizedek, I'm not counting him, it's debatable, as to whether he was really a human being. Some people think he was a pre-incarnate visitation of Jesus and all kinds of things. We won't know until we get to heaven. But I think of Daniel. Daniel, he was just seemingly perfect. As I've read his story many times, I'm always standing in awe of that man as a young man, a teenager. And then through middle age, he didn't flinch. And then into old age, he continued to show 
a dependence on the Lord that was awesome. But we know mostly the characters of Scripture. They're painted warts and all, aren't they? We get a clear picture of them. The Bible is not afraid to tell the truth. In fact, it cannot help but tell the truth because it is the book that's inspired by the Holy Spirit. God wrote the book. God breathed the ideas into the minds of those prophets and the New Testament apostles and associates of the apostles to write what we have in the Scripture. We have a tremendous treasure in our hands. Do any of you or have any of you ever used Peter Roger's Thesaurus? Have you ever used that? It's a book. It's an entire work of literature that is devoted to giving synonyms for words and maybe deals with antonyms. I don't know. Synonyms for words. The word thesaurus itself comes directly from a Greek word, the New Testament word, which sounds like it. Thesaurus, the word means treasure or treasury. When we have the Bible in our hands, we have an incredible treasure. Next to my relationship with Jesus Christ, and therefore with God the Father and the Holy Spirit, is the Bible. The Bible is not God, but it is God's Word. God breathed it. And He gives us a clear picture of Jesus so that we can be saved. Hold your place here and go to Psalm 22, which we read to begin our worship service today. We're just going to look at some excerpts of it that reveal what happened with, to Jesus on the cross. This psalm was written by David a millennium before Jesus. That's roughly speaking. A thousand years. We're going to see that it alludes to crucifixion. Crucifixion had yet to be determined as a means of execution. The Carthaginians were the first ones who crucified people. The Persians borrowed it from the Carthaginians and perfected it. The Romans borrowed it from the Persians and they even further perfected it. It was the most excruciating kind of execution, the most humiliating kind of execution. Let's look at some of the things that are said in this 22nd Psalm that are prophecies about Jesus. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let the Lord rescue him because he delights in him, meaning God would delight in Jesus. Certainly he would. <coughs> Excuse me. And if we were to go to Matthew chapter 27, we would see in 39 and 43 allusions to this. Jesus fulfilling. Then look down the page to verse 14. My, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. This is probably a description of the physical things going on with Jesus, especially your bones being pulled out of joint as He would have to raise His body up with his, all His strength and then His body would sag when He would exhale, inhale, exhale, all that went with that. And His heart was damaged probably in the process too. Then look at verse 16. For dogs have surrounded me, a band in evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. 
I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. Can you imagine Jesus, God in human flesh, stripped naked, affixed to the cross, having been brutalized by flogging before being taken to the cross, made to carry his own cross until he welted under the weight of it. And there he is, fixed to the cross. And he died for us. He had to, didn't he? Somebody had to die for the sins of mankind. It couldn't be somebody. It couldn't be anybody. It had to be one person. A man who was God in the flesh, therefore a perfect, blemishless sacrifice whose blood would pay for our sin. And whenever the Bible talks about the blood of Christ, I hope you know it means the life of Christ because in the book of Leviticus, the Bible says the life is in the blood. And Jesus' blood was spilled for us. And look at 18. This is the last place we'll look in Psalm 22. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Well, this also should remind you of what the soldiers who crucified Jesus did. He had one garment, and they rolled the dice for that garment. Do you see the precision of these prophecies a thousand years before Jesus fulfilled them when he died on the cross? Exactly. Amazing, isn't it? If you cannot accept the suggestion, it's not a suggestion, it's a truth, but I'm going to say in the mind of a skeptic or a seeker, unbeliever, it would be a suggestion. If you can't accept the suggestion that God breathed his ideas in the form of words into the minds of the people who wrote the Scripture, then how can you ignore the precision with not just Psalm 22, but many other places, 351 times in the Old Testament, the prophets wrote about the coming of Christ and the things which that Messiah would have to fulfill. And Jesus fulfilled each one of them. Go to chapter 16. Chapter 22 talks about the aspects of the crucifixion. And I failed to mention a very important one. I hope some of you were thinking better than I was when I was working through that psalm. But what does the psalm begin with? 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Isn't that right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus had to be God forsaken. Why? Because He had to become sin in order to pay the price for our sin. Sin had to be paid for. Remember, the wages of sin is death. Jesus had to die so that we could be saved from our sins. But that sin separated Him from God the Father. And so God the Father turned His back for the first time in all of Jesus' existence. Remember, He's eternal. He had never felt the displeasure of God. They were very, very close to say the least. But that's what He endured. After He died, look at verse 10 of Psalm 16. 
For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, the place of the dead. Neither will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. This is a picture of the resurrection. It's only one of many that could be cited. We don't have the time for it. Do your own study. But we once more are drawn to these prophecies. And let's go back now to 2 Peter and look at the way Peter begins, verse 19. So we have the prophetic word made more sure. What was the prophetic word more sure than? Well, some have said more sure than the teachings of the false teachers that we've been a little bit introduced to, but will be introduced more in the near future as we go through the book of 2 Peter. But that wouldn't be the case because that, that ha- they had nothing to stand on, the false teachers. Others have said that this was a prophecy made more sure than what had just happened in the teaching of Peter. Peter recounted when he and John and James were invited by Jesus to go on the mount, which we know as the Mount of Transfiguration, and then Elijah and Moses show up, and everything changed. It was unbelievable. Jesus shined so brightly. His clothing was more white than any white clothing laundered by a human being that Peter and his companions had ever seen. It was the glory of God showing the real identity of Christ was being shown through that shining. It was the glory of God. And if you know about the glory of God in Scripture, you know there's always brightness associated with the glory of God. But that couldn't be the case. Nothing would be greater than what God said. God spoke in an audible voice. He said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well. Please listen to Him. He is my chosen one. So that wouldn't be it. But probably what he is saying here when he says, so we have the prophetic word made more sure. Just in case, he's talking to his audience. Remember, they were being influenced by false teachers. And that influence was exercised by those false teachers probably saying, look, these guys, Peter, who is he? He's uneducated. He hasn't been to rabbi school. He is just some kind of country bumpkin from the region of Galilee. You can't listen to him. Don't listen to him. But when he says, so we have the prophetic word made more sure, talking about the Old Testament prophecies, he's saying, look, these prophecies, you know, they've been fulfilled. And they're continuing to be fulfilled. They're going to be fulfilled. Everything, perfectly, exactly, in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's read a little further in 19, to which... You do well to pay attention. We've been doing that today, hopefully. Paying attention to the prophetic word. As to a lamp shining in a dark place, I've already mentioned Psalm 119, 105. God's word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. The purpose of Scripture, our salvation, our coming to know Jesus and therefore coming to being a child of God and knowing God as our Father. But also sanctification, that has to do with spiritual growth. And the Lord uses God's Word to make us more like Christ, doesn't He? Look at Ephesians chapter 5 for just a moment. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27 reads this way. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her. How did Jesus give Himself up for the church? 
on the cross, right? And that he, why did He do it? That He might sanctify her, that's the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. The Word of the prophets. The Word of God. That He might present to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or such, any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. What's that talking about? That's talking about our glorification, isn't it? When we, at the second coming of Christ as the church, God will have finished His refining work of His church. And this passage of Scripture, at the last part of verse 19, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. The morning star. In Numbers 24, 17, the writer Moses speaks of how a star will come from Jacob. And that star will crush the forehead of Moab. And that star will tear down all the sons of Sheth. The Shethites and the Moabites were enemies and they badgered and they beat up on the children of Israel in their time of travel in that 40-year wilderness period. But God was going to send the morning star. And in fact, Jesus in Revelation 22:16, the last chapter of the Bible, he calls himself the morning star. Jesus Christ is coming again. Let me stop here. The reason I started this passage of Scripture known as 2 Peter, I, I was just thinking I'll just do the third chapter because it deals with the second coming of Christ. And we need to be ready. But I thought, I want to do justice to it, and I can go rather quickly, and I should know better than that, to go quickly in anything, but to go to get the context leading up to the third chapter. And I'm so glad I did. I have grown a lot in my understanding in studying this. I've never studied this in depth in my years of being a pastor. It's the only book in the New Testament that I haven't gone through with the exception of Revelation. But what we learn is that Jesus is getting us ready. Listen, church, how does He purify the church? It's through difficulty. We're in a difficult time. It's likely that we will experience even more difficult times. But what we can look forward to is the second coming of Jesus. There were people already in Peter's day, we're going to see this in the third chapter, who were mocking believers. False teachers, they were mocking them, says, hey, look, Jesus hasn't come back. It's been maybe 40 years. He's not coming back. Who are you kidding? Let's stop just a moment. How many years passed between the first prophecy that was given regarding the Messiah and the coming of the Messiah? It was given to Eve. And in that prophecy, what did God say to Eve? Your offspring, your seed, that's an odd way of describing something that a woman gives birth to because it's the man who gives the seed. That's a picture of the virgin birth all the way back in Genesis 3.15. Your seed will bruise the head of the serpent, i.e. Satan, and Satan, the serpent, will bruise the heel of your seed. 4,000 years passed before that came to pass. And I don't want to discourage you. Christ could come today. I doubt that it'll be 
much longer before He comes, which would cause us to really want to get ready. Don't you want to get ready? How do you get ready? If you're not saved, you need to give your life to Christ today. Today is the day of salvation is what the Bible says. Don't delay any longer. But if you do know Christ, and I would say probably the vast majority of us do, how do we get ready? We sanctify ourselves by the truth. Christ sanctifies us, but Jesus says, I sanctify myself. Was He sanctified? Totally. I sanctify myself for their sakes. It's not just for us, but there's a whole host of people in El Paso who need the gospel. And we who know Jesus have that treasure. And we have been given the unparalleled privilege to be spokespeople for Jesus. Not to be offensive. The gospel in and of itself is offensive. It'll turn enough people off, but there are lots of people who have been prepared by the Holy Spirit to receive the gospel through you. You. I'm talking to you as an individual. I wish I could talk to you one-to-one. You and me. God has prepared people that He wants you to share Jesus with. You say, I don't know how. Don't worry about it. Let the Spirit of God give you what you need in that hour. Matthew 10 talks about that. Read it at your leisure. But it's His way. I want to go back as I finish today to the statement that Jerry Seinfeld made to Mr. whatever his name was. Paris, I think was his name. When he said... If you have transcendental meditation in your pocket, you're Columbus with a compass. Now, I don't think Columbus had a compass. He probably had a sextant, I think, probably. I don't know this, so you navigators help me with this. Not now. Don't embarrass me in front of everybody. But but a sextant. And he, he traveled by the stars. Do you know what? This man said, Columbus. Now, he was an imperfect man. But you don't get the truth about anybody who claims to be a Christian from the media. In his diary, I just want to read an excerpt from his diary. It was the Lord who put it into my mind. I could feel His hand upon me, the fact that it would be possible to sail from here, that would be from Spain in Europe, to the Indies. All who heard of my project rejected it with laughter, ridiculing me. There is no question that the inspiration was from the Holy Spirit because He comforted me with rays of marvelous inspiration from the Holy Scriptures. And then here's one of the Scriptures that became a staple in Columbus' life. He said, I have been given this mission to carry the light of Christ into the darkness of undiscovered lands and to bring the inhabitants of those lands to the holy faith of Christianity. His own name, Christopher. What does Christopher mean? Christ-bearer. That was in itself a clear indication that God had called him to do this, he thought. And in his journal, this is what he wrote. Listen to me, O coastlands, and hearken, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. He claimed that promise. Columbus with a compass. You're better than Columbus because you have the Bible if you know Christ. You have the Word of God. 
and you have that as your roadmap to where He wants you to go and more importantly, who He wants you to be. It's not where you are that's important. It's who you are. Are you yielded to the Holy Spirit? Are you letting the Holy Spirit use you to touch other people? That's God's will for your life and my life if we're Christians. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this day. We thank You for the Word of God. Oh, Lord, forgive me for being nonchalant at times in my dealing with Your Word. And, oh, Lord, we pray that this message on the exactness of Your prophecies will stir in the heart and mind of some unbeliever here today to want to know Jesus. And those of us who do know You, Lord, May we want to be more fully sanctified by being men and women who bathe ourselves in a way in the Word of God so we can be used to minister to others and be ready when you return. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.